The Gist is brought to you by Prudential's 4040 Vision, a multimedia microsite exploring what life and the future looks like for today's 40-somethings. Here it inspires real people, the hopes they have for tomorrow, and much more. See yourself in their stories at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. And by Bonobos. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order at bonobos.com slash gist. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gist. Discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better-fitting wardrobe can make. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, December 8th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So Mark Zuckerberg has decided to donate $45 billion worth of Facebook stock eventually to charity. The reaction is in, what an asshole. Actually, the overall reaction was, oh, he had a baby. And he's donating money, that's nice. But baby, hoodie, baby in a hoodie, hoodie daddy baby. You know, we're not that sophisticated, especially the morning shows that covered it. But the financial press that delved into the charitable, quote unquote, decision, looked at it. Sconce, How Mark Zuckerberg's Altruism Helps Himself was the title in the New York Times. Zuckerberg set up a limited liability company which has reaped enormous benefits as public relations coup and will help minimize his tax bill. Jesse Eisinger wrote that. By the way, a guy named Jesse Eisenberg played Zuckerberg in the movie. It would seem that Zuckerberg, with all his fortune, can buy off anyone except people named Jesse Eisen something. That's something to watch in this space. But is it true? Is it true that Zuckerberg was doing this as a tax dodge? I was kind of skeptical of that claim because let's say he wanted to secretly keep a couple of billion dollars for himself. No one could do that easier than Mark Zuckerberg, right? If he announced, I'm going to donate 95% of my $45 billion to charity, that still leaves him with over $2 billion, which is like good billionaire money. It's even for billionaires, the ones who have $2 billion, that's still kind of an exclusive club. You could buy almost everything. Lots of onesies with the $2 billion you hold back. And then today in the New York Times, Josh Barrow wrote a debunking, essentially, of his paper's original skeptical coverage. However, the debunking was a little bit in the weeds. Here, here's a quote. Unlike some donors, the couple won't be able to take full advantage of this provision. The key to the bonus for stock donations is the double benefit exclusion of the accrued capital gain from tax combined with the deduction of the stock's value against other income. Maybe I could have, you know, intoned that so you could follow, but I couldn't follow. But the point, the general point is... If ever there was someone who didn't eat a tax dodge, it's Mark Zuckerberg. Remember when the guy donated millions of millions of dollars to the Newark schools and they wrote a book about it and they kind of called him a dupe. So now he's going to do it in a different way with an LLC. Thank you, Mark Zuckerberg. Thank you, hoodie and the baby Zuckerberg. Today, I spiel straight from the Trump-induced anxiety and crisis intervention hotline. So the problem isn't necessarily Trump. He's putting on quite a show with this no Muslims in America thing. The problem is the anxiety that Trump is producing. I've talked about this before. We funded a hotline. We field some calls. But first... Julian Zelizer, who is a professor at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University, here to talk about naming the school after Woodrow Wilson at Princeton University.
Today's 40-somethings are charting their own courses, sometimes by choice, but many times out of necessity. Caring for aging parents, starting new careers midlife, juggling today's financial realities with planning for retirement, and much more. Prudential's 40-40 vision brings these challenges and others into sharper focus through real-life interviews and commentary from 40-somethings, plus a compelling four-part podcast on first-time parenthood in your 40s with radio and television personality Faith Saley. Be sure to experience it all at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. Jefferson Jackson Day dinners, both parts of that are under criticism, let's say. The school at Yale named after John Calhoun. Without him, maybe slavery would have ended a decade earlier. But now Woodrow Wilson has come under fire. Students at Princeton University look at the name of their school of public and international affairs and note that while it is true that Woodrow Wilson deserves credit for many achievements on the international and national stage, he was, by modern standards, a racist and at his own time, an avowed segregationist. Julian Zelizer is a professor of history at Princeton and also teaches at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Hello, Julian. Thanks for having me. Wilson gets a lot of credit. He's rated top 10 by historians all the time. What's the good part of Wilson? Why is he held generally in high regard? Well, on domestic policy, you can argue uh, without him, you wouldn't have modern liberalism. He expands or he supports the expansion of the government, creation of the Federal Reserve, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, the progressive income tax. Uh, All of this comes out of his administration, really the foundation Uh, for a lot of the things that happened in the rest of the century. So if you're a liberal, uh, these are things you always looked at. And then on foreign policy, uh, we go into World War I, and he tries to end the war with this idea of a League of Nations, basically an international alliance that will use diplomacy uh, rather than war to prevent future wars. So Now, the League of Nations is often viewed as a a quixotic quest. The United States didn't join the League of Nations, though it existed, and the League of Nations didn't end World War II. So how much credit should it be given for this? Uh, idea that didn't work to end all wars. Well, he still gets credit for the idea. It's seen as a political failure. People talk about Wilson not being so great with Congress and ultimately not being able to persuade Republicans in the Senate to go through with it. Uh, But historians always talked about the idea as a good one and one that would have maybe put us on a different path had the United States participated. Now we get to uh, the issue of race, which was, we should say, very much undercover because I'm a student of history and I would maybe remember one or two sentences. And the one or two sentences I remember without about Wilson are, as a Southerner, he generally agreed with segregationist policies or allowed or did nothing to stand in the way of Jim Crow laws. That seems passive. It's a little bit worse than that, isn't it? It is. I mean, the other thing you used to learn in the classes was that he screened Birth of a Nation, which was a very racist film uh, that came out during that period in the White House. Uh, But it was more passive than uh, I think a lot of people, or it was presented as more passive than the truth was. Yeah, Uh, the context was this, this, Birth of a Nation was the signature achievement in filmmaking at that time happened to be a horribly racist film. Yeah, Yeah, Wilson was uh, an active supporter of segregation. Uh, That's what's come out of a lot of the protests, that uh, one of the things he does is support the purge of African-Americans from key civil service uh, positions in the Treasury Department, in the post office. He goes along with this. It's clear he supports it. In his writing, he often longs for the Old South, and he writes horribly about Reconstruction 
and he talks favorably at the KKK. Uh, so this is not someone who is just like everyone else. Uh, he was on, you know, one end of the racial segregation debate uh, where he basically supported that old status quo. How much of it was politics? Because he was a Democrat and the Republican Party was much more the party of blacks. Teddy Roosevelt had Booker T. Washington as an advisor and invited Booker T. Washington to the White House and, of course, Lincoln. So there is a political element. I mean, Democrats in this period were dominated by Southerners. Southerners would be very important in Congress. So many Democrats, even after him, Franklin Roosevelt, often make deals with the South. They basically accept the Southern racial way of life because that's the only way they see that they will be able to get other legislation through. That said, uh, if you read what Wilson wrote, if you see his words, it's more than that. It's more than politics. He was a believer uh, in this aspect of American society. Okay, so I always think that people should be judged based on their time, not our time. And this is why I have come to think that Jackson, it's a pretty terrible record because even at the time he was noted as a uh, xenophobe and an Indian killer, the equivalent then of a racist. But you're saying at the time, Wilson was on a pretty far end of the spectrum and pretty much towards the, the, the racist end of it. He was, but there's this other side of Wilson that's very important. And you could argue that, you know, the road to the civil rights legislation in 1964 and in 65 would never have existed if he didn't create this foundation of federal power. He supported the idea that Washington had to deal with social issues. He supported, you know, stronger regulations to protect workers. He supported a lot of the women's suffrage issues that were being raised. So he wasn't uh, regressive on all fronts. And so that's why this gets complex in terms of how do you evaluate him? Well, a lot of the women's suffrage groups also had racist elements in them. No, the absolutely. This is part of not just Wilson. It's part of American liberalism in these decades. That's what historians have been looking at. They were bad on race. Many of our uh, you know, top liberals, uh, our icons, didn't deal with race. They either supported racism uh, or they decided they weren't going to really try to tackle it uh, because of the power of the South. Were some of his accomplishments due to his stances on race, making deals with Southern Democrats, as we're going to acknowledge that he didn't hold his nose and make the deals, he readily did it. But if he were what we would judge as more progressive on race, would that have hurt him with this League of Nations or with establishing the safety net? It might have. I mean, it, it, he, he wasn't uh, kind of opposing any major legislation. There wasn't any huge effort at the time to overcome segregation. So, you know, what he was doing was uh, not necessarily crucial to passing all this legislation. Purging African-Americans from jobs uh, in the federal government was not essential uh, from yeah. what I've seen to getting the Federal Reserve uh, created. What was his relationship with the top, I would say, top black leader at the time, W.E.B. Du Bois? It was mixed. I mean, one of the things that's come out, uh, it, initially it was pretty good and, and Du Bois was uh, pretty favorable, uh, but he's disappointed with Wilson. And there's meetings where he expresses his disappointment that he or the administration have not done what was necessary. And in some ways they went backwards, not forwards. Even Teddy Roosevelt, who we always hold up as an exemplar of race relations, had some terrible stains on his record. Oh, Absolutely. All the presidents, uh, the ones that follow, the Republicans that follow Wilson had terrible records on this as well. 
they don't do anything to reverse what Wilson has done. And again, go into the 1930s. And Franklin Roosevelt, who is not the same kind of person on race, still accepted the idea that federal legislation would not tamper uh, with racial segregation. He doesn't do much to support anti-lynching legislation. Franklin Roosevelt, you know, who was as progressive as they came uh, by the standards of the time. So this was common with all the presidents of the period. So look, uh, knowing knowing you and how you think about these things, of course, you're going to say it's great to have the discussion. We're talking about history. We're grappling with the past. It's interesting to think about things that are ambiguous. What about stripping the school of this name? That is, is you know, I guess my question there is, you tell me what you think about that. But is that actually grappling with the past and having the discussion or is that ending the discussion? I don't know what the school will do. And to be honest, I don't know what to do. I think the debate is legitimate and it's good to have this. Uh, I think it's complicated to start removing names because you can't stop with Wilson. Uh, there are many buildings at this university and other universities and government offices named after people from earlier years who didn't do great things all the time. They were anti-Semitic. They were sexist. They were racist. So you have to then uh, open up the door and, and look at all these uh, different institutions. I think that's difficult. Uh, I think more important is dealing with the other issues that have come with this. You know, how do you create a campus environment that is truly uh, diverse and open uh, and, and multicultural and where racism is not tolerated on the campus? I don't think in the end, Moving the name will deal with those structural issues. Uh, when you go to the Wilson School, I've been there once. I forget. If, besides the name, is there a statue? Is the tone of talking about Wilson on plaques mostly hagiographic? Uh, it is. I mean, it's it's not. I don't think students think about it all the time. Yeah. To be honest, I don't think they've thought about it as much. Or professors until the debates like this happen. The major thing I thought, uh, I think people still think about is, you know, this was a key figure both for the university, he was president, and he transformed it, but also in terms of public service. It's an institution devoted to the idea of public service. We didn't even say it was pre right, president of Princeton. Like, yeah. Extremely important. Very to important. Yeah. And really revolutionized the school. Governor of New Jersey. Governor was of New Jersey. Was he a good governor of New Jersey? Well, like everything else, there's a mixed record. Did he cause traffic jams on the bridge? <laughs> <laughs> Not that I know. That's the standard Right. Now. The bridge wasn't there, but, you know... <laughs> I think the kind of notion and memory of him has been pretty positive. Uh, but again, you know, people did talk about this. They talked about his failure with the League of Nations. It wasn't all positive, and, yeah. and that's how we look at all our leaders. Do you think about, I don't know if the word worry is right, but, you know, maybe 50 or 100 years in the future, the things that we accept or think somewhere on the continuum now, maybe that'll get the people we think of heroes today removed from our historic memory as people to heap glory on. I don't know. Maybe one day there'll be a Bill Clinton school of something, and then we'll look at his record on the uh, Defense of Marriage Act, and then there'll be the same protest saying, we got to get his name off of this. Oh, absolutely. I do think that's the idea. If you move down this path, it's it, it opens up many questions. You know, the Lyndon Johnson School of Public Policy at University of Texas makes sense. Uh, but you could say, well, he opposed civil rights until the early 1960s. He said racist things. So what do you do with that? 
And there's many examples like that. I think heroes today could come under the same kind of scrutiny. Even people I know have been discussed as possible alternatives to the Woodrow Wilson School. I'm sure all have records that can be uh, looked at unfavorably uh, and and things might change every time. So it's a, it's a difficult uh, thing. You know, there are certain people and things that are symbols of racism. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the debate over the Confederate flag. And I think that's in some ways a little more clear cut. I think what makes Wilson more difficult, he's not a symbol of racism. Uh, And so then it becomes more complex of can't you still honor the person through the institution? Julian Zelizer is a professor at Princeton. One of his affiliations is the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, or at least, you know, that's the name of it for the time being. Thank you, Professor Zelizer. Thanks for having me. Every guy wants to look his best, but, you know, it's really hard to maintain a stylish wardrobe. How hard? Look at me. Well, there's a company called Bonobos. And what Bonobos does is it takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. Clothes that fit? You can find those. Stylish clothes? They're in the pages of the magazine. It's the marrying of the two. So they take into account your body type, any body type. What do you mean by fit? I find fit means tight. I like a little more loose, but I'm wrong. I've, I've also found out that I'm wrong in that. They also help you easily browse online, top quality styles in your home, free and easy shipping and returns, personable and fast service. Of the type of clothing that Bonobos offers, of the men's clothing, that are crafted for a better fit. Shirts, office shirts, weekend shirts. I tend to blend the two. Suits, fit like someone tailored them for you. Pants, jeans, jackets, outerwear. I'm just naming all the clothes. Get it? They got all the clothes. They got your men's clothes, guys. Look stylish, feel comfortable, and pick your perfect fit form. Be you slim, standard, tall, or the dreaded, yet ever so common, other. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order when they go to bonobos.com slash gist. I shall spell it B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gist to discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better fitting wardrobe can make. And now the spiel. Let's take some calls. Hello, Trump-induced anxiety and crisis intervention hotline. Yes, hello. Is this Trump poison control? Yes, this is the Trump crisis center. Go ahead. Yeah, um, well, I'm just really, really worried Trump's going to win. I mean, what if he wins? What if he does? Okay, Laura, I hear you. We need to go through some facts. Let me lay this out for you. First of all, he has the highest negatives of anyone who's ever been in this position running for president. People loathe him. They tell pollsters that he is other candidates, people who support other candidates. He is none of their second choice. Some with the Ben Carson, but mostly not their second choice. Now, I know you're hearing from all throughout the media, oh, it's only a month. It's only oh, less than two months until Iowa. Iowa barely matters. Who wins Iowa? No way correlates to who gets the, who gets the nomination. They should be saying things like, oh, it's six months until the California primary because that is the most delicate, and there are so many candidates, and it should be a long primary fight. So this is all adding up to Trump is a much longer shot to win the GOP nomination than his current standing in the poll indicates. Do you understand that? Okay, but they were saying all along he was going to crash. What if he doesn't? Yes, I hear what you're saying, but let's even assume that he does win. And the betting markets say he's not going to win. People who do this for a living, I mean, he might win, sure, but if he wins, he will almost definitely lose 
the general nomination. You know, they do polling where they match up Hillary Clinton against every other candidate. And she does better against Trump than she does against Marco Rubio, than she does against Jeb Bush, than she does against even Ben Carson. I don't know why I'm saying even Ben Carson, but you understand she in every poll except the Fox poll. By the way, the Fox poll has every Republican beating Hillary Clinton. Go figure. In every poll, she is a victor against Donald Trump. And I think in real life, nothing will hand this election to the Democrats as much as a Trump candidacy. And as I've explained, Laura, we really think a Trump candidacy is not going to happen. I hope that helps. Okay, thanks. Hello, Trump Center. Yeah, uh, Trump Center. Yes, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'm a Muslim, and I'm planning to travel internationally sometime after the 2016 election. And I'm wondering if I'll be able to get back into the country. Oh, and similar question. I think Dr. Oz is scheduled to speak in Toronto in spring of 2017, and I was wondering if he'd be able to get back into the country. Excellent question. So under the original announcement of the plan, the answer would be no. But then he clarified today on CBS that American citizens would get back. But I think the overriding thing to know is this. He's a total incompetent. He might be mean. He might be a racist. He might be a bigot. But I just don't see him, A, getting elected or, if elected, being able to implement this plan. So let's remember, let's not get too anxious. He's a total incompetent. Okay. Great to know. Thank you. All right. Absolutely. Hello, Trump Center. Yes, well, I, I called last week, and your advice to discard Zogby was really helpful, and I've been telling all my friends that, too. Thank you. Thank you for that. So what's the problem this week? But my problem now is I'm just depressed. I mean, even if he doesn't win, what does how well he's doing say about America? I'll take my answer off the air. Well, we're not a radio show. There's no air to go off of. Well, then I'll just listen quietly as I shiver and hug myself. Okay. I understand what you're saying, but let's put this in perspective. So 30% of likely Republican voters tell pollsters nationally that they favor Trump. Well, what does that mean, likely Republican voters? You know, the best turnout an election's ever had is the 60% of registered voters, which isn't even all Americans, but registered voters who voted for Obama over McCain in 2008. All right. Obama got 70 million votes. McCain got 60 million votes. So half of the half of people who are registered are the likely Republican voters. You know, it comes out to about, oh, let's be extremely generous and say that 100 million people are likely Republican voters. So if 30 percent of them like Trump, it means that 30 million people say they like Trump right now. Now, that's not an insignificant amount of people, but it's about 10% of the electorate. And to put it in perspective, the percent of the electorate that says President Obama was born overseas is 20%. Now, think about how we think about that 20%. I mean, were we saying, oh, I really fear for America? I mean, maybe we were, but I think that we all understood that there is a portion of America, it's not tiny, but it's not really significant, who believes in nutty, crazy things, you know? And in the Republican Party, there are even more wing nuts on a number of issues. You know, a recent poll showed that 43% of Republicans believe that Obama is a Muslim. Do we say, I can't believe it? I can't believe we live in that country? I don't think we say it. Maybe we don't know it. Maybe the Trump polls are in our face all the time, so we're confronted with it more. But there are plenty of other data points that say that a portion of Americans, 10% to 20%, believe nutty things. I don't think that the Trump ascendancy, if 
you want to call it that, argues more for the nuttiness of this portion of Americans. And it also doesn't prove that half of all Americans are totally nutty. Yeah, you want to factor in those who support Rubio and Ted Cruz, but we're not doing that. This is the Trump Crisis Control Center. I hope that helps. Hello, Trump Hotline. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Trump Hotline? Yes. Go ahead. Hey, this is, uh, this is difficult to admit, but I'm, think, I'm thinking of voting for Trump. Oh, okay. Hold on. We have, wait, we have a is supervisor. Okay, I'll take this. I we mean, have a I, know, procedure I, know, for this. I know, I know, I know, I know. Most, most of his followers are ignorant or fearful or bigots. Some are good people, I assume. Some are good people, we assume. But I just think, I think he may be saying, uh, saying what everyone thinks. I think. I don't know. I don't know. I'm really, I'm really confused. I understand you. I hear what you're saying. We just have to go through a checklist of certain risk factors. Yeah. Okay. okay. Have you, have okay. you taken any drugs in the last 24 hours? No. Okay. Are you currently drunk? I don't think so. Okay. Might, what's going on? Might it be a case of hipster meta commentary? I'm too old for that. Okay. Understood. There are some other risk risk factors. I just need to check these off. Are you a premium member of Glenn Beck, Rush Limbaugh, or Sean Hannity's listening club? Okay. No, 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 no. I just want, now we have to review media consumption and I'm here for you and I'm listening to you. I just want to know, have you consumed, what media have you consumed recently? Well, I I, just, I did just binge watch two entire seasons of Homeland. Okay. All right. That's it. Now I know what's going on. All right. This is what I'm going to need you to do. I'm going to need you to access your queue and erase any future episodes you have stored there. Do you understand that? Yes. Yeah, I understand. Okay. I assume you have Netflix. Of course. Okay. Now, please listen to me. You're going to have to go into Netflix, and I want you to watch the new Aziz Ansari show as counter-programming. Aziz Ansari. Yes. I need you to watch his new show, Master of None. Isn't he Hindu? He might be Hindu. I'm not really sure. The point is the guy's charming and not apocalyptic. You need to know that you are a loved person here on this earth, that everything is safe, and there is equality and tenderness all around you. Do you understand this? Do you think you could do this? I understand. I'll try. I'll try. Thank you. Thank you. And and call in. Check in again. Call in after you watch all those episodes. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here for me. Okay. Well, I hope that helped. This is just another day at the Trump-induced anxiety and crisis intervention hotline. And that's it for today's show. The show is produced by Mike Volo, who thinks we might need to change the name of the Willie Wilson Kansas City Institute for On-Base Percentage. It was engineered by Jason Gambrell, who questions the name of the Wilson Phillips Center for the Study of Sustained Pop Hits, not aided by familial connections. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers, who's on the board of the Mr. Wilson Center for Good Neighbor Policy towards overall wearing towel-headed lads carrying slingshots. We are the gist. We're considering removing our endorsement of the Don the Dragon Wilson endowed chair in kickboxing and pseudo reptilian studies. Umperu, Deperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening.